So I have that question that I wanted to ask you. I don't need a verbal response. Matter of fact, I'd like you to just think it over in your head. And uh, you're not going to know the charge until a little bit later. So I'm going to ask you this question first off. So, are you guilty? Don't need to respond. You don't know what I'm going to ask, so are you guilty? That's a baby pass, I think. Okay, long as... Good. Welcome. Welcome. I'd say it's his first time in church, but I know it's not. There you go. Um, and without delay, we're going to... Uh, going to read a couple of verses together just to kind of set the stage here. So we're going to go to 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 1, and I'd like us to read together verses 1 and 2. They should be on the screen for you. So uh, read with me if you'd like. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the church of God in Corinth, together with all his holy people throughout Achaia, And the verse 2, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now we're going to drop down to verse 12. And please read this with me. Now this is our boast. Our conscience testifies that we have conducted ourselves in the world, and especially in our relations with you, with integrity and godly sincerity. We have done so relying not on worldly wisdom, Nicely read. And I hope that those messages that are within there will be written indelibly on your heart so that you will understand what the Apostle Paul is saying. Those are Paul's words. I was reading recently and I came across a word that I really liked, so I borrowed it. And it's the word assumicide. How many have come across that word? It hasn't been greatly used, but it's just starting to come into use, I understand. But it, it, it is a real word, and it does have a real definition. Matter of fact, the definition is on the screen, or will be. When your assumptions lead to dire consequences that could lead to your potential demise, you commit a suicide. It's what happens then, to put it in plain English, when you make assumptions about others so that you can portray them in the worst possible light. Michael Anders said it this way. He, he, he said we do this all the time. I would not dispute that. We do this all the time. Here's what he said. We are so prone to be suspicious When we become offended or hurt, we immediately begin to look for someone or something, but usually someone who did us wrong. I can't tell you how many times he said, I have done this in my marriage or in my parenting or in my everyday life, but I can tell you how many times it's been done to me because I keep track of those things. I'm being a bit facetious, Michael said, but not too facetious. It's really amazing to me how often I am quick to assume that someone has it in for me. 
End of quote. You can mark it down as suicide leads to the death of relationships because we end up believing the worst about others. And when we're believing the worst, anything that's good or anywhere in between, worst and good, never enters in. It's never considered. We've all been guilty of drawing wrong conclusions on the basis of tiny scraps of evidence, right? Right? Holy people, right? There's nobody in this room that righteous. Come on. We've all... Is my mic on? Okay, put your hearing aid in. We've all been guilty of drawing wrong conclusions on the basis of tiny scraps of evidence. He didn't call me back, so guess he doesn't want to talk to me. I think she's just been trying to ignore me anyway. They never hire people like me. There's no sense even trying. That church is so unfriendly. How could he be a Christian and do things like that? Yeah, he says he's a Christian. I saw her in a bar. She must have a drinking problem. I'll bet they're sleeping together. And you're not assuming sleep either. Is there any problem with being honest? Yeah, he's probably a jerk like that home too, so. I don't like him. I don't know why I don't like them. I just don't like them. Oh, she is so full of herself. No, you can't. You could never trust somebody who dresses like that. And I believe anyway he's nothing but a hypocrite. Are you guilty? On the other hand, if you are the victim of a suicide, it's very hard to fight back against false assumptions. Few things hurt us more than being misunderstood, especially by people we call close friends. The closer they are to us, the greater the pain. And when that happens, we discover a lot about ourselves. How we respond when we've been misunderstood tells a great deal about the depth and the sincerity and the genuineness of our Christian faith. We've all been guilty of drawing wrong conclusions on the basis of tiny scraps of evidence. We speak before we ever think. We speak before we ever know the whole story. We speak before there's ever a conclusion. Just bang, out it comes. So our scripture this morning is going to bring us face to face with a serious and important and strange situation that at first glance doesn't seem like it should be a very big deal at all. It's about the Apostle Paul. And he found himself in trouble with a church which he had founded. He established this group of believers. And he was, it's in the Greek seaport of Corinth. And if you were read Acts chapter 18, you'd know that he spent 18 months in Corinth 
uh, preaching the gospel, winning people to Christ, establishing the church. And after he left, a faction arose in the congregation that questioned his leadership. They challenged his authority. They insinuated he wasn't even a real apostle. And they attacked his character and they accused him of using the Corinthian church for his own gain. The troublemakers succeeded in turning most of that church or that group of believers against Paul. And their chief complaint was this. Paul couldn't be trusted because he had changed his travel plans not once, but twice. He hadn't come back to visit the Corinthians. He said he would, and that proves it. He's a fickle man, and his character and his message can't be trusted. And so they're judging him on something made up and something that includes half-truths and many facts that aren't facts. Just remember this about the Corinthian situation. It all started over something very small. And that's how it usually happens. Now, I walked in there. Nobody even greeted me. They could care if I I come or go or die on the spot. Yep, I sent them an email. They didn't even answer the email. They didn't invite us to their party. Hmm. They didn't show up for that appointment. Well, we heard, we heard they said something negative about us. Oh, they didn't laugh at our jokes either. And suddenly they seem cold when they used to be glad to see us. And I feel really different about that relationship. See, all of those things are little things. They're small stuff. They're petty complaints. We all have them. From a tiny spark of discontent, a mighty flame of unhappiness grows. That flame soon becomes a wildfire that threatens to destroy a relationship. Congregations have split and friendships have ended over things that started very small, but all of a sudden grew completely out of proportion. And I want to tell you something as I stand before you with 46 years of ministry experience and before that being involved in a church from the age of four, I have witnessed it many times firsthand. This is something, not something I read in a book. It's not something I saw in a movie. It's something I've lived. It's something I know about. So let's see how Paul responds to a misunderstanding that threatened to destroy a friendship and a local church. And let me ask, and let us all ask ourselves the question, am I guilty? Could I have been in that crowd? What happens to you when your actions are questioned? Now if you read carefully 1 and 2 Corinthians, it appears Paul made three different decisions about his trip to Corinth. In 1 Corinthians 16, verses 5, 6, and 7, I don't have it on the screen. I'm not, I'm not going to it because I know some of you are note-taking and some of you will listen to this message later. But he planned to go to Macedonia and then to Corinth. 
And he plans to pass through Macedonia, and he's going to spend the winter with them in Corinth. And he doesn't want it just to be a brief little couple-day visit, but a longer time so that he can minister to their needs. And he can qualify it all by saying, if the Lord permits, this is my plan. The second thing that happened here is he later planned to go to Corinth, then to Macedonia, and then back to Corinth. He mentions this in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, which I'm referencing. If you go down to verses 15 and 16, you'll see that he said, I plan to visit you first so that you might benefit twice. Interesting. And finally, he decides to postpone his trip altogether. And in verse 1 here of chapter 2, he says, I decided I would not bring you grief with another painful visit. So this is really bothering Paul, and it's really got things upset and stirred. So what's going on? Well, that question is pretty hard to answer because we don't have all the details regarding the trouble that threatened to overwhelm everything, especially the church in Corinth. But this much we do know, and it's clear. Paul's opponents used his changing plans as a way to attack his credibility. They were looking for an open door. They were looking for a crack in, in, in his defense, so to speak, and they just found it. See, see, he promised to come, then he was going to go to Macedonia, then he changed that and was going to go to Macedonia first, and then come here, and then he was going to go come here and go there and come back here, and then he just scrapped it all. He just said, I'm not going, I don't want to make it worse. Wow, wow. He can't make up his mind. He calls himself a leader. He calls himself an apostle. He says he's coming, but he never shows up. And that's a problem, isn't it? It's a problem. Keeping your word is largely, largely, hugely important for everyone. But especially for spiritual leaders. It's all about integrity, consistency, Proving yourself trustworthy, showing up on time, doing what you said you'd do. If people feel like they can't count on you, how will they ever listen to what you have to say? Paul's answer to the Corinthians comes in three parts, and if you're note-taking, get these. In verse 12, he refers to this. He said, my, we read it together, my conscience is clear. What else does he say? Verse 12. I haven't hidden anything from you. And if you just let your eye go down to verse 13, he says, I have not tried to deceive you. So anything you're saying about my trustworthiness or my integrity or my character, those are all false claims. And they have no basis in fact. Next, I want to ask you the question, what do you do when your words get twisted. Paul doesn't try to hide his change of plans. Yes, it's true. He changed his mind several times. But whether or not the Corinthians could understand why, his only concern was for their welfare. Look what it says in 2 Corinthians 1, go all the way down to verse 24. He says, not that we lorded over your faith, but we work with you for your joy. Why? Why? Here's, a, here's why. Because it is by faith that you stand firm. 
He wanted to come and see them, but only if his visit would bring about healing and bring about spiritual growth and bring about a sense of communion and togetherness. What about the charge that he's inconsistent? Did he just say yes, yes, and then no, no, just for the fun of it? Verse 17, Paul says, check out my message. It comes from God, and he never changes. His message to us is always yes, and we, his people, always say amen. We say amen to all of God's promises. Everything God promises will come true. D.L. Moody once said, God never made a promise that was too good to come true. I love that statement. Look at the amazing things God has done for us in Christ. He enumerates them here. In verse 21, he said, he anointed us. In verse 22, he said, he sealed us. Also in verse 22, he says, he gave us the Holy Spirit as a deposit. Wow, we're rich people. God wants men and women who will stand firm in Christ. That's the difference that comes from knowing Christ deeply and intimately and walking with him daily. And I'm going to jump off the tracks here for a minute. I don't want to completely go off the rail, but I want to just make a little bit of a, of a uh, addendum here for you. And I want you to think about this. It's many and most of the time people who are not walking with the Lord, they're not right with the Lord, or they're very immature in their faith. They're very young babes in Christ who get caught up in these insignificant things and make mountains out of molehills and so on. But I want to also add, it's not always people who are just starting out on their faith walk. Sad to say that. But it could be others as well who've been around and know better and have been there for a long time, supposedly growing and growing and growing. And the reason I said that, you see how important a daily walk with Christ is? Not a weekly walk. Not a monthly walk, not a when-you-think-of-it walk. You see how important a daily walk with Christ is? Exactly the sort of foundation God wants us to build into the lives of all his children. So what difference does it make if we know this story of Paul and we know all these things? It matters when we face a life-changing crisis. You ever been in one? It matters when we're trying to help somebody else through that kind of a crisis. It matters just as much when we're misunderstood and our honorable words are twisted and our changing plans are made to appear sinister in some way, like we just have everybody's in, uh, bad interest in, at heart. We don't care about them and we, we, we aren't thinking about them and we don't love them. Now, some people will choose to misunderstand what we say or do to those, we have no answer except to say, our conscience is clear. That's what Paul said. Huh? We've done what we could, and we rest our reputation with the Lord. That's a good defense. Let me tell you, friends, let me tell you, saints, we will never stand firm in our own strength when uh, trouble comes our way. That, there's so much truth and power in that little statement that I, I, it bears repeating. We will never stand firm as the saints of God in our own strength 
when trouble comes our way. I've often heard that good theology will save your life. And this passage of Scripture actually proves it. So here it is, friends, and if you're note-taking, this is worthy of notes. Get to know the Lord. I didn't say get to know about Him. Get to know the Lord. Make God's Word the standard for your life. Ah, we have so many challenging philosophies and ideologies and ideas and thoughts and, that are pressuring people in our society today, and they don't know which way to turn, and they don't really know how to set a standard for living. Make God's Word the standard for your life. Make the God experience a daily experience, right? Not a weekly not a monthly, not an annual. Make it a daily experience in your life and see how things change. And rest in His love. Huh? We sing here a lot about His love. We sing a lot about resting in that love. And we carry those same old problems with us in and out, in and out, Sunday after Sunday, week after week, conversation after conversation. Rest in His love. And here's why you can do it, because you should revel in His righteousness. That righteousness through Jesus has been imputed to you and to me. So we ought to revel in that righteousness. And then think about His greatness. Think about the kind of God we serve. We put our God in a box and we make him such a small commodity for, uh, you know, like a fire safety is what it is. Yeah, we'll use him if we really need to and we need to pull that plug, we'll do that. No, 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 no. Think about his greatness. Think about who he is. Think about him as the creator of all Think about him as the one who made all of us and knows all of us. Think about the one who is so powerful that even the forces of nature obey his word. Think of his greatness. And then lastly, give glory to his name. Give glory to his name. I want you to hear me. When others twist your words, do not despair. Speak the truth. Explain yourself clearly. And then entrust your future with the God who knows you through and through. And in Christ, who has anointed you, Paul said, sealed you, and then given you the Holy Spirit and promised to guide you. What are you doing, if I might ask and be so bold, what are you doing trying to captain your own ship? Jesus is the one who commands the winds and the waves. He should be able to. He created them. He set the boundaries for them. And we get out on the sea of life with our little craft and we decide, well, we know how to handle things. I can only ask this question one more time because I'm getting tired of asking it. What are you doing trying to captain your own ship? 
Of course you don't know more than God. Of course you, don't, you can't make a decision better than God. Of course. And you know that and I know that. And yet how many times do we step over that line? If we trust in him, that time, listen, take my word for it. If you truly trust in him, if you're walking daily with him, that time of chaos will pass and you will be stronger Stronger, not weakened, stronger for having gone through the struggle. You won't be a beat down, weakened, just shell of a person when it's over. You'll be a strong person. And if we trust in him, the time of chaos definitely will pass. You say, can you tell me when it's going to pass? No, no, I can't. Can you tell me how long it'll take? No, I can't. And the reason is, we don't need to know those things. If it's in his hands, it's in his time. So what happens, and and I'll ask again, any of these things I've said this morning, are you guilty? Am I guilty? Are we guilty? And we know the answer to all those questions. So tell me, what happens when your motives are challenged? Have you ever been there? You ever had somebody question your motives? Remember his critics thought that Paul was some sort of fickle, fly-by-night preacher, the kind who's always on a power trip and he's a control freak who, who always has his little minions singing his praises. But when he didn't show up, when they expected him, what else could they conclude but that he didn't even love them? And to that, here's what Paul says. Right there in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 1. I call God as my witness that it was in order to spare you that I didn't return to Corinth, verse uh, 23. He stayed away so as not to have an angry confrontation. That's why he made up his mind not to make another painful visit to them. He wrote them a tough letter, and that letter apparently was lost in history, but in which he boldly confronted them and all the criticisms. And now he's saying, I said what I needed to say. I wrote what I needed to write, so I won't do anything right now. And then he adds a surprising revelation of his own heart for these young believers who viewed him with suspicion. Look at verse 4. For I wrote you out of great distress and anguish of heart and with many tears, not to grieve you, but to let you know the depth of my love for you. Is Paul a fraud? I think not. That's very surprising to them. And as hard as it might be for some of us to hear and understand, there are people in this room, and I'm not going to name them because I don't even know who they are, but I know in a crowd like this there are people in this room who need the next sentence. So I've put it on the screen just so it'll be emblazoned in your mind and heart. We need to hear it. 
We can't always solve every problem in the world. No, you laugh. I wish someone had told me that 40 years ago, 30 years ago, 10 years ago. I've told some of you before, when I started the ministry, I was absolutely sure that a couple of messages and that's about all it would take. The world would be saved and we'd all be just having a nice ride on our way to heaven. Well, that hasn't happened yet. I remember getting into public life 21 years ago and I thought, huh, I got some answers. My problem was I hadn't heard the questions. Oh, that happened? No problem, we can fix that. More often it was, no problem. Leave it to me. Whether it's your social life, your business life, your public life, your married life, your church life, whatever it is, somebody in this room needs to hear this. We can't always solve every problem in the world. And here's why. Some people won't listen. And some people love to argue. And some people have already made up their minds. Do not confuse them with facts. And some people have an answer for everything. I can only talk, God forgive me, but I can only talk to those kind of people so long. And then I have to make my phone ring or something. Evidently, that was the situation in Corinth. I mean, the church now was so rent with factions. And Paul had already sent them a very stern, painful letter, writing with tears streaming down his face because he knew the situation was inflamed. And then he decides not to even come to Corinth. I was going to come there first, then I was going to go to Macedonia and come back, then I was going to come to Corinth and go to Macedonia and come back to Corinth, then I was going to come a little later, and now I'm not coming at all. Tell me there isn't trouble in the camp. Talk about, but listen to the wisdom of Paul. Counter, you talk about countercultural wisdom. Well, maybe you don't talk about it, but if you ever read about that, this is a great example of it. He's getting this wisdom from the Lord. He's not out there on his own trying to figure things out. Paul knew that his personal presence in Corinth at that moment in that situation was just going to make things worse. You think it's inflamed now, and you think these people are uptight now, and you think there's trouble now. Man, if I go back there and try to straighten it out when they're in that kind of mood. Ooh. Now, this is not a blanket rule for every time and place and every situation, no. But it's a principle that we ought to keep in mind, or if you've never heard of it before, you ought to start using it. Sometimes you need to meet and hash things out. That's what we call face-to-face -face encounter, interpersonal relationships. That's the way 
Some people do it. Sometimes you need to back off completely, give people space, give them some time to think and pray and discuss, and then give the Holy Spirit time to soften hearts, including yours. Now, I'm fascinated by the way this passage ends. Speaking of the difficult letter he wrote to the Corinthian church, he said, I wrote the letter in great anguish. I had a troubled heart and many tears. I just didn't want to grieve you, but I wanted to let you know how much love I truly have for you. Wow. Wow. It was a hard letter that Paul didn't want to write, and it was a hard letter that the Corinthians didn't want to read, but he did and they did. Here's the mind-blowing part. He wrote the letter so they would know how much he loved them. I'm not sure they felt the love as they read those stern words. You ever somebody really sincerely and, and honestly, they wanted to help you in a certain situation, and they want you to know right up front how much they love you, and you think, oh boy, what's coming? Here comes the bomb. It's going to drop. I've had, uh, I still have that letter from my dad when I messed up my f second year of college. Uh, yeah, you pull it out every once in a while, and you understand there's a lot of wisdom there. And those words, some of them hurt. And I'm like, can't you back off? That's, that's kind of nasty to say that about, I'm really quite a nice guy. And some of you parents that I know really well, maybe better than some of the other parents in the room, I, I know you've been through this too, even with adult children. It's, it, it. Your sons and daughters are still your sons and daughters. And you have as much love for them right now as you had when the day they were born. And I've got to say this. Love must be both tough and tender. Didn't Dr. Dobson write that book years ago? Tough love. In this case, Paul's tough letter proved how much he loved them. If you, look, look if, if you're out and hope and pray, and I've prayed many times that it would never happen here on the property or anywhere, but, but you're, you're standing there talking, and all of a sudden, you shout at your child, watch out! To keep him or her from running out and being hit by a car, and I've seen some close... Whew. When your child leaves this building, mom, dad, grandparent, whoever's in charge, make sure you got that child by the hand. There's some crazy, crazy drivers in this room. I know, you find, you know you're laughing because you don't think it's you. But it has to be somebody that's laughing. I see the way you come around the corners. I see the way you pull into the parking lot. I see the way you come up close to the building. Woo! Three our fathers and a Hail Mary. I'll tell you what, I'm right on my knees when I see some of you get in. I run. So before you so rudely interrupted me, here's what I was saying. You're talking to someone, and all of a sudden, the conversation ends, and you say, look out, watch out! You don't want that kid being hit by a car. Do you love him then, or do you hate him? 
You love that child so much at that minute that you would risk raising your voice and scaring him. You'd even risk running out there and taking the hit yourself in order to save that child's love life. That's love just as much as hugging the child and hugging the child and hugging the child and smooching the child and saying, Oh, mommy loves you. Daddy loves you. I love you. And I know you do. See, real love has to be tough and tender. So now, Paul decides to wait for God to work. That's in my notes, and i got to be quite honest with you. I got down to that point, and I thought... Oh, what a great idea. And, and it is a little humorous when I say that, but when I say things like this, I'm trying to, I'm try, that's why I use a little bit of humor now. And then I try to get your attention so that that, what, what I just said, locks in. So Paul decides, ah, I'm going to take a little time and we're going to let God work. Hello? Hello in your life. Hello. Hello. Mm. Yeah, I looked at everything. I got it all worked out. I got my plan ready to go. Foot's on the gas and here we go. But sometimes we need to decide to wait for God to work. And in order for God or for Paul, or for anybody, not to stir up more trouble, Paul decides he's not going to Corinth right now. Or not at this moment. I see in Paul right here something somebody might have missed, but and other writers that I've read, I've heard them say, that we see true Christian maturity in Paul. Right there. He has no desire to stir these people up any further. And he only wants to share the joy when he does come. And he does plan to visit. And he says so in verse 3 of chapter 2. Because he uses the word, when I came. Or another version says, when I do come. He's still planning to come to Corinth. But for the moment, he will wait. Wise. Waiting can be hard. Yes, no. The side says yes. The side says yes. The side is undecided. They have a bigger crowd and they haven't polled everybody yet. Yeah. I'll tell you what to do. Check with CNN. They'll give you a real accurate poll. You get the truth there. I said I use a little humor. You don't mind, right? That's beyond humor. Um, waiting's hard, right? Hmm. Well, do you suppose that's why we don't have we don't have that in our toolbox very often? We, we don't bother to use that because it's tough. It's hard. Hmm? I think it's one of the toughest disciplines in the Christian life. 
When I look back at the mistakes that I've made in the ministry, many of them have come because I would not wait, could not wait. Too many times I've jumped into the proverbial bull in a china shop you know, mode, trying to fix everything according to my own vision, right and wrong, just my idea of what's right, what's wrong. And I'm not arguing for apathy here or for discontent, but rather an argument for active, listen, get this, this is a nice word to get down or a nice little phrase, active waiting. Let's try it. This is what David meant when David wrote in Psalm 37, I think we got it on the screen, I'm going to quote it with you. He said, refrain, if it's up there, let's read it together. Refrain from anger and turn from wrath. Do not fret. It leads only. Those are tough words. That's active waiting. Say this with me. If God is good, He can be trusted to do right. But He doesn't work on my timetable. You said it well. You said it well. It's worth noting what Paul does not do in this passage. And those things can be often overlooked when you're doing a message with as many ramifications as this one. He does not avoid the problem. He didn't avoid it. He doesn't call people names, and I think he had every right to do it. And he doesn't assume motives. Man, wish I'd known about active waiting. But you can't wish the past back into the present. So, in short, Paul's not going to commit a suicide. He doesn't do to his critics what they've done to him. Simply and clearly explains himself, explains his change of plans, and in the process he reveals his heart to his readers. That's all any man can do in a situation like that. And then you just walk away or you back off or you just let God handle it. I'm going to say it one more time. When I consider or look back at the mistakes I've made in the ministry and the mistakes I've made in life, God have mercy, many of them have come because I would not wait or I was not listening to God or I knew the best course to follow. Nobody knew it like I did. I'm guilty. Are you guilty? And what about... Because if this hasn't gotten you yet, this is for the rest of you. What about responding to misunderstanding? I want to give you some practical takeaways. I don't want to just preach a bunch of stuff, close the Bible, and say, there, go do it. Here's some takeaways. First, sometimes we'll be misunderstood by our close friends. You probably know what I mean. 
Paul clearly loved the Corinthians and he knew them well and they clearly knew him well, yet there was a rift between them and it was growing. And the same thing happens to us, doesn't it, in families. It happens in marriages. It happens among friends. It happens in co-worker situations. And it certainly can happen and does happen in many a church. And if you haven't been misunderstood lately, don't worry. It's bound to happen before long. And I'll tell you why. See, we never bring these things into our reasoning. That's part of living in a fallen world. We don't live in a perfect world, a sinless world. We live in a fallen world. What happened to Paul happens to all of us sooner or later, no matter how much good we're doing or not. Second good takeaway for you is the best defense is an honest, clear, non-defensive explanation. We always have to defend ourselves when we're explaining it. Why? We're saying, God, stay where you are. I can handle this. How many of you remember Joe Friday? How many ever saw Dragnet? I can't believe some of you have never seen Dragnet. Joe Friday was famous for saying, <laughs> say it all, just the facts, ma'am, just the facts, ma'am. Now that could be on a quiz or a test or something or, you know, in a crossword puzzle or whatever, something, now you'll know. Joe Friday, Jack Webb, just the facts, ma'am. Paul doesn't complain, he doesn't blame, he doesn't point fingers, he isn't long-winded. He lays out his explanation so his readers can decide for themselves why he had not come back to Corinth. Period. A third takeaway would be we can't control how people respond to us. Wow. Wow. Rarely will our explanations convince everyone. Sometimes even our closest friends will choose not to believe us, and at some point we have to decide to leave our reputation in God's hands and walk away from the controversy. If you ever sat in a political caucus when a really hot topic was being debated amongst fellow members, you'd know what I mean. It's gut-wrenching. If you li- Here's what Warren Worsby said. One of the wisest, greatest Bible teachers of the modern era. Here's what he said. If you live to please people, misunderstandings will depress you. But if you live to please God, you can face misunderstandings with faith and courage. Thank you, Dr. Worsby. Wow. Wow. That is powerful stuff. Fourth takeaway, pray for those who misunderstand you. Oh, I forgot to do that part. Do that first. Do that first. In a certain small group setting somewhere, a leader exhorted the the adult members about reaching out to what he called, quote-unquote, the lepers around them. Those are the people who cause us difficulty or pain, the folks you don't want to come in contact with, and normally you avoid as much as possible. Then he asked this question, who are the lepers in your life? And the room was filled with an uncomfortable silence. 
No one wanted to answer that question. Except one man who finally stood and he spoke up and he said there were some people in his life and he was willing to admit it that he found difficult to be around. Referring to the call to reach out to the lepers, he commented, he, he, uh, he, that had been, uh, uh, had been the challenge, he commented, that's good preaching, but hard living. Hmm? Isn't that true? It is easy to say, love the people who misunderstand you. It's hard to put it into practice, but we must do it anyway. And, and a fifth takeaway, we must not return evil for evil. You heard what, Paul sa- or what uh, David said in Psalm uh, 38. This is all so hard, especially when your motives are re- just repeatedly attacked. But in this, we're to be like our Lord. Isn't that who you're following? Isn't that whose name you praise? He was reviled. He didn't return evil for evil. He faced shouting crowds. He didn't trade insults. He didn't try to get even. He didn't make accusations. I submit to you, that was not a natural way and is not a natural way to live. When we're insulted, our natural inclination is to return an insult even worse. Insult for insult, and I'll go one better. huh? But but Jesus chose another way. The old spiritual puts it, he never said a mumbling word. And uh, as a sheep before her shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth, Isaiah said. When he stood before Pilate and Herod, and when he faced the jeering mob, he uttered not insults, he made no threats. When they swore at Jesus, he didn't swear back. When they scourged him, he didn't retaliate. When the soldiers pushed that crown of thorns on his head, he didn't curse at them. When they drove the nails in the hands and feet, he didn't threaten them. And when the bystanders spat at him, he didn't spit back. This type of behavior can and at times and will, maybe not to that extent, but those types of things will happen to you too, friend. And that's the real test of your faith. You find out what you really believe and what you're made out of when others mistreat you. When sometimes the real test of your faith is what you don't do. Sometimes the real test of your faith is what you don't do. Sometimes you'll be a better Christian by not saying anything at all. What was his secret? How did he do it? Well, the answer lies, that's Jesus we're talking about. The answer lies in the final phrase of 1 Peter 2, 23. I'll just read it for you. He entrusted himself to him who judges justly. Yeah, he gave it all to God the Father. In our day, I don't think there's a word used in the local or, or national uh, discourse more than the word rights. We hear so much talk about claiming our rights. And I got to tell you, if that kind of spirit comes crawling into a church and we hear people getting angry and saying, how dare you trample on my rights? You know what, friend? Most of our problems in humanity come from claiming our our own rights. The Bible turns that upside down. You aren't to think of your rights first. You're to think of others first. 
And when you're busy thinking about others and investing your time, your talent, your treasure, your life, your ministry in others, you don't have time to carry the placard and say, give me my rights. That whole idea is turned on its head. So when you are misunderstood, I want you to repeat these four sentences. Now, as you read these words, I'm going to encourage you to just kind of stop for a few seconds and get them right in your mind, get them in your heart, write them down on a card, put them somewhere you see it every day, repeat it every day for a week, and if you do that, this truth will be tattooed on your soul. And here's what it says. You're going to say it right after me. It's not about me. It's not about now. It's all about God. It's all about eternity. Pretty much every point that I raise in this message can be lumped under the heading of a suicide. Am I guilty? Have I been guilty? You just come to conclusions before. A conclusion is supposed to be something that comes at the end of something, not at the beginning and work backwards. Are you guilty? Have you ever been guilty of this? The followers of Jesus will sometimes be misunderstood, not only by the world, but even by other Christians. And may God give us the spirit of Jesus that we might walk in his steps. Brothers and sisters, reject a suicide. Don't rush to conclusions and talk about stuff that you don't know about. Just keep walking in Jesus' steps and do it every day. And be not guilty. I wonder if we could just take a moment or two in quiet, in reflection, in prayer. And I want each of us to just search our hearts and ask God to remove any of those assumptions, those conclusions, those prejudgments that we've made or are making or have made and replace them with good and honorable and holy thoughts and actions so that we might come out of here today stronger, better, more equipped to do God's will than even when we entered. Let's be quiet before the Lord just for a moment or two, if you would. I, I invite you to join me in prayer. I'm going to allow you to pray, and it'll be quiet for just a moment, and then I'll close this portion of our worship with prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the eternal and spiritual business that's being transacted in hearts and lives right now. As we take the truths of your word, as we take the example of the Apostle Paul, as we look at the steps that Jesus took, 
And as we look at our own lives, and as we take stock seriously and honestly, God, we pray that your Holy Spirit might guide us into all truth and to right attitudes and to proper actions. God, we love you. We want only the best for you, all of these dear people. We're so thankful for listening ears, attentive minds, people that are here to be a blessing, to receive a blessing, to be part of worship and service and praise to you. God, we're so thankful, as Paul reminded us, that you gave us this wonderful gift of salvation. You've sealed us and you've put in us an anointing and a presence of your Holy Spirit. May we listen to the Holy Spirit, follow the Holy Spirit, and live by the precepts that are established right here in your word. And we thank you for every single one here and for their decisions today. In Jesus' name. And all God's people said, I love you. I love you. If you have anything you'd like to ask about or speak about after service, please feel free.